My beloved brethren of the priesthood, this is a glorious sight. I wish each one of you could stand here. and enjoy the inspiration which we get as we look into your faces. How we appreciate the service you so willingly give to the Lord. We know God will bless you for it. With all my heart, I endorse the instruction which you have heard here tonight. It has been sound and good, and I hope and pray you'll be wise enough to accept it in your lives individually and in your homes with your families. To all of you young men of the Aaronic Priesthood, Aaronic Priesthood holders, May I say we love and appreciate you. We are so grateful for your dedication and faithfulness. With all my soul, I encourage you to resolve now that you will be clean and worthy to serve the Lord all the days of your life. Therein is true happiness. We live in a wicked world, and it is my conviction that the Lord has held many of you back in the spirit world until this time that you might have the strength and the opportunity to live in this wicked world and not partake of the sins of the world. I'm sure you have the power and the strength so to do. I recommend to you that you make up your minds, many of you born under the covenant, to prove to the world that you can live in this wicked world and not partake of the sins of the world. That is our challenge as a people. And I have every confidence we can meet that challenge. And so we're grateful for your dedication and faithfulness. Tonight, I speak to all priesthood. All priesthood leaders. You who have responsibility for our father's children, my message is a call to the priesthood to feed my sheep, as the Lord commanded to Peter. Most of you are familiar with the Savior's description of members of the church and their leaders. True followers he called sheep and priesthood leaders he calls shepherds. We remember his unforgettable example 
of the true shepherd's concern for his sheep. Quote, If a man have a hundred sheep, and one of them be gone astray, doth he not leave the ninety and nine, and seeketh the one which is gone astray? And if it so be that he find it, he rejoiceth more of that sheep than of the ninety and nine which went not astray. Close quote. In Jesus' time, the Palestinian shepherd was noted for his protection of his sheep. Unlike modern sheep herders, the shepherd always walked ahead of his flock. He led them. The shepherd knew each of the sheep and usually had a name for each. They were smaller flocks in number. The sheep knew his voice and trusted him and would not follow a stranger. Thus, when called, the sheep would come to him. At night, shepherds would bring their sheep to a corral called a sheepfold. High walls surrounded the sheepfold, and thorns were placed on top of the walls to prevent wild animals and thieves from climbing over. Sometimes, however, a wild animal driven by hunger would leap over the walls into the midst of the sheep, frightening them. Such a situation separated the true shepherd, one who loved his sheep, from the hireling, one who only worked for pay and duty. The true shepherd was willing to give his life for the sheep. He would go in amongst the sheep and fight for their welfare. The hireling, on the other hand, valued his own personal safety above the sheep and would usually flee from the danger. Jesus used this common illustration of his day to declare that he was the good shepherd, the true shepherd because of his love for his brothers and sisters, you and me. He would willingly and voluntarily lay down his life for them, for us. Equally, the Good Shepherd did give his life for the sheep, for you and me, for all of us. Later, during his resurrected ministry, Jesus directed Peter to feed my lambs, feed my sheep, feed my sheep. Three times this charge was repeated to the newly designated head shepherd. Do you think that Peter recalled the parable of the good shepherd? Do you think that Peter could remember what a good shepherd was to be, what he was to do? Do you think he ever questioned his Lord's example as being too idealistic? It must have impressed Peter deeply, for tradition has it 
that he also willingly gave his life for the cause. The expressive symbolism of the Good Shepherd is not without significant parallel in the Church today. The sheep need to be led by watchful shepherds. Too many are wandering. Some are being enticed away by momentary distractions, and others have become completely lost. Ponder carefully these representative samples from several stakes which illustrate the magnitude of our problem. A stake in the eastern part of the United States has slightly over 300 Melchizedek priesthood holders and an equivalent number of prospective elders, lost sheep. A stake in Salt Lake City has 1,100 Melchizedek priesthood holders, but also 1,100 prospective elders. Where we ask are the shepherds. A stake in England has 360 Melchizedek priesthood holders, but over 800 prospective elders, a very small percentage of whom attend their meetings. We ask, how will the sheep survive without the safety of the sheepfold and the watch care of a loving shepherd? We know great results can take place when the shepherds make a concerted effort to show concern. In one stake in southern Utah, concerted efforts have been made to reactivate prospective elders. In a period of two years, over 100 men were ordained elders in the Melchizedek priesthood. Their ordinations raised sacrament meeting attendance in the stake by 14 percent. A stake in Arizona advanced 47 prospective elders to the Melchizedek priesthood. Another in the state of Washington advanced the same number. Both continue to use the temple preparation seminars. The districts of one mission in Great Britain have reactivated more than 600 members with the help of full-time and stake missionaries. A stake in South America, through prayerful and earnest efforts, reactivated 146 prospective elders in less than one year. Forty-five more are now ready for ordination to offices in the Melchizedek priesthood. We realize, as in times past, some of the sheep will rebel and are as wild, a wild flock which fleeth from the shepherd. But most of our problems stem from lack of loving and attentive, attentive shepherding. With the shepherd's care, Many of our new members, those newly born into the gospel, would be nurtured by gospel knowledge 
and new standards. Such attention would ensure that there would be no returning to old habits and old friends. With a shepherd's loving care, many of our young people, our young lambs, would not be wandering. And if they were, the crook of the shepherd's staff, a loving arm, would retrieve them. With a shepherd's care, many of those who are now independent of the flock can still be reclaimed. Many have married outside the Church and assumed the lifestyles of their marriage partner. The problem, I repeat, is serious and considerable in its magnitude. We offer no new solutions to this old problem. All we need to do is to put the priesthood to work. The charge Jesus gave to Peter, which he emphasized by repeating it three times, is the proven solution. Feed my lambs. Feed my sheep. Feed my sheep. The answer then is found in shepherding the flock. In other words, priesthood watch care. It is real concern by a true shepherd, not just the faint concern of a hireling, that a hireling might show. Here are some questions every true shepherd should ask. Shepherds, home teachers, are you watching over the families as you should? Are you ministering to their needs? Do you care enough about your family's welfare that you find out their interests, that you remember birthdays and special events, and that you continually pray for them? Are you the first one to the home when a family needs assistance? Does the head of the household call on you first? Are you attentive to the needs of each member of the family? When one of your assigned families moves, do you know where they have moved? Do you make an effort to obtain their new address? Have you checked with neighbors, friends, and relatives, shepherds, stake presidents, bishops, quorum leaders? Are you welcoming into your ranks new converts? Do you feel your love and concern? Do they feel your love and concern? Are new converts invited into your homes? Do they know what family home evening is and how to use it? Does the family feel welcome and comfortable in your midst? Do you ordain worthy male members to offices of the priesthood following baptism? Do you give them meaningful church assignments? Shepherds, stake presidents, bishops, quorum leaders, 
Do you leave the ninety and nine and search after the lost one? Do you call and appoint advisors and, and others who can reach impressionable youth and visit them on their own ground? Have you fully implemented the youth program? And are you using this program to meet the individual needs of the youth? Are you watchful over the young singles, the divorced, and those with special needs? Do you carefully and spiritually prepare those who enter military service? Are you especially attentive to young men between the transition period from Aaronic priesthood to Melchizedek priesthood? Bishops, do you make sure they come under the care of their new shepherd, the quorum president? Do you provide significant church service opportunities for our return missionaries so these young men and women do not drift into inactivity because they do not have occasion to serve as they have been doing for 18 months or two years? Do you use visiting teachers to augment home teaching? Are you teaching fathers their duties? Do you have temple preparation seminars to encourage prospective elders to prepare for the Melchizedek priesthood and the temple? Do you have older prospective elders assigned to the high priest and invited to join those with whom they would feel most comfortable? Are younger prospective elders invited to participate with the elders' quorums? Some leaders say that some men are past hope. But as the angel told Abraham, nothing is impossible with the Lord. One brother, who was regarded by some as a hopeless case, tearfully exclaimed to the temple worker at the ceiling bar, I don't know why I waited so long for this blessing. In a recent Saturday evening meeting of leaders, I heard a determined brother state, I've sure had a time with the devil since I started to become active. Prior to that time, I just went along with him. Are we helping the one who needs the help because he has started on the way back to full activity? Shepherds, stake presidents, bishops, quorum leaders, are you attentive to the records of church members under your charge, especially those who are not participating with you in meetings? Do you obtain forwarding addresses from home teachers when they leave your midst, or are you just relieved to get them off your records and send their records to the address unknown file? Shepherds, fathers in Israel, are you holding family prayer with your family morning and evening? 
Do you hold a regular, consistent, inspiring family home evening once a week? Do you lead out in spiritual matters? Is your example what it should be before those whom you lead? Do you ask and pray for the welfare of your own? Do you love them? Would you give your life for them? Shepherds, all who hold the priesthood of God, we ask you solemnly to evaluate your performance in relation to these matters. We call on you, as Paul did to the elders in Ephesus, quote, Take heed, he said, therefore unto yourselves and to all the flock over which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers, to feed the Church of God, which he hath purchased with his own blood. Close quote. We repeat to you the charge Jesus gave Peter. We repeat it with the same emphasis, the same repetition. Feed my lambs. Feed my sheep. Feed my sheep. We call on you to extend yourselves with renewed dedication. We want you to do something you have not been doing. We want you to watch, to feed, to tend, and to care for the flock. And in the event that some are temporarily lost, we challenge you to find them. Why should you do this? Because you love your brethren and sisters. You want them to have joy in our Father's kingdom. There is no greater work in all the world than that of saving souls. Incomparable joy can be yours when you bring souls unto him. If you will be prayerful and earnest in your desires to tend his flock, the Lord will bless you with success. This we promise you. God bless you, my brethren of the priesthood, watchful shepherds all, I hope, to know your flock and to be known of them. May we carefully attend and protect them so that they may remain safe and free from harm. This is our challenge, our duty, and our joy, which joy I promise to all of you as you accept the challenge and do your full duty. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Let me ask each of you to picture two crystal goblets in your mind. They differ in size and shape. They are both of good quality and have been well used. One has been carefully kept in a china cupboard. It is clean and polished. It is warm and inviting in appearance. It sparkles in the light and is filled with clear water. The other glass is coated with grime. It has not been in the dishpan for a long time. 
it has been used for purposes other than those for which it was made. Most recently, it has been left outside in the weather and has served as a flower pot. Although the flower is gone, it is still filled with dirt. It is dull and unbecoming in the light. Is not each of us like a crystal glass? We vary in size and shape. Some of us radiate a special spirit. Some are dull and uninviting. Some fill the measure of their creation. Others do not. Each is filled with the accumulated experiences or debris of a lifetime. Some contain mostly good things—clean thoughts, faith, and Christian service. These hold wisdom and peace. Others enclose dark and secret things. Over time, they are filled with unclean thoughts, selfishness, and sloth. They often hold doubt, contention, and unrest. Many know they are not living up to their potential, but for various reasons have procrastinated making changes in their lives. Some long for they know not what and spend their lives in a haphazard pursuit of happiness. These, in a way, are like the crystal goblet which spent part of its existence filled with dirt. They sense that there is a higher purpose to things. They become dissatisfied and begin to search for meaning. First, they look outside themselves. They sample the pleasures of the world. As they do, they discover, much as did the snail who set out to look for its house, that after arriving at wherever they were going, they are no closer than before to the object of their search. Ultimately, they look within. They have really known all the time that this was where to find peace. Sin, you see, is not just a state of mind. Wickedness never was and never will be happiness. They discover that if they are not righteous, they can never be happy, and they resolve to change. Then they are confronted figuratively with the problem of how to turn a weathered flower pot into a sparkling crystal goblet. Questions are asked. Can I ever be forgiven? Is it really worth the effort? Where do I begin? In the case of the glass, it is easy to understand what to do. We begin by recognizing a better use for the crystal. A convenient place for dumping the unwanted contents is selected. The dirt is left there. The goblet is carefully washed with high-quality detergent to remove the stains and residue. It is lovingly polished and placed once again in the company of other crystal glasses in the china cupboard. It is put back into use and cared for regularly. There is a similar process whereby men and women are purified. The misuse of their lives is forgotten and they are renewed and changed. This principle, of course, is repentance. When accompanied by authorized baptism, it provides not only an initial cleansing but an ongoing remission of sins as well. Participating in this purifying process is perhaps the most thrilling and important thing we can ever do. It has far-reaching, even eternal consequences. Of more immediate interest, however, the rewards of repentance are peace and forgiveness in this present life. Let me illustrate what all of this means. A few years ago, I was asked to speak to a group of young men. I don't remember now exactly what was said, except that near the end I made the statement that no one, but no one present, had done anything for which he could not be forgiven. 
After the meeting was over, one of them came up to me and said, I just have to talk to you. Inasmuch as I soon had another appointment, I asked if it could wait or if someone else could answer his question. He replied that he had already waited many years and that it was very important to him. So taking advantage of the few minutes available, we found a little unused classroom, went in and closed the door. Did you really mean it? Did you? he asked. Mean what, I said. The part about how none of us had done anything that could not be forgiven, he replied. Of course I did, I said. Through the tears then his story came. He was of goodly parents. All of his life his mother had told him that he was going on a mission. Before he turned 19, he was involved in serious transgression. He didn't know how to tell his parents. He knew it would break their hearts. He knew that he wasn't worthy to serve a mission. In desperation, he began to look for an excuse not to go. He decided to take up smoking. He felt that his father could understand that better and would not probe for the real reason. Smoking would hurt his parents, he rationalized, but not as deeply as the truth. Soon he found that the bishop wasn't put off by his use of tobacco. The bishop told him just to stop it and go on a mission anyway. So to get away from the bishop, he entered the military service. And there he fell under, fell under the influence of some good Latter-day Saints. He stopped smoking. He was able to avoid major temptations. He served his time, received an honorable discharge, and returned home. There was only one problem. He felt guilty. He had run away from a mission. He had run away from the Lord. And he sensed somehow that gnawing discontent which comes when men do not live up to the purpose of their creation. So there you have it, he said. I have not sinned again. I have attended my meetings. I keep the word of wisdom. Why is it that life seems empty? Why do I feel somehow that the Lord is displeased with me? How can I know for sure I have been forgiven? Tell me what you know about repentance, I said. He had obviously done some reading on the subject. He spoke of recognition, remorse, and restitution. He had resolved never to sin again. Let's see just how those principles apply to you, I said. Let's begin with recognition. What is the best indicator that someone recognizes he has done wrong? He will admit it, was his reply. To whom, I asked. He was thoughtful. To himself, I guess. Men sometimes view themselves in a most favorable light, I said. Wouldn't better evidence of awareness of wrongdoing be to tell someone else? Yes, of course, he answered. Who else, I insisted. Why, the person wronged, he said, and, and maybe the bishop. Have you done this, I asked. Not until now, he replied. I've never told it all to anyone but you. Maybe that is why. You've not ever felt completely forgiven, I responded. He didn't say much. Let's look at the next step, I said. What does it mean to feel remorse? It means to be sorry, he answered. Are you sorry, I said. Oh, yes, he said. I, I feel as if I had wasted half my life, and his eyes filled again with tears. How sorry should you be? He looked puzzled. What do you mean? I said, 
Well, in order to be forgiven, a transgressor must experience godly sorrow. He must have anguish of soul and genuine regret. This sorrow must be strong enough and long enough to motivate the additional processes of repentance, or it isn't deep enough. Regret must be great enough so as to bring forth a changed person. That person must demonstrate that he is different than before by doing different and better things. Have you been sorry enough? I asked again. He hesitated. I have changed, he said. I'm not the same as I was before. I keep all the commandments now. I would like somehow to make it up to my parents. I have prayed for forgiveness. I apologize to the person I wronged. I realize the seriousness of what I have done. I would give anything if it hadn't happened. Maybe I haven't been as good as I could be, but I don't know what else to do. But I didn't ever confess to anyone. I said, I think after this meeting we can say you've even done that. But then he said, after all of that, how can I ever know the Lord has really forgiven me? That's the easy part, I replied. When you have fully repented, you feel an inner peace. You know somehow you're forgiven because the burden you have carried for so long all of a sudden isn't there anymore. It is gone, and you know it is gone. He seemed doubtful still. I wouldn't be surprised, I said, if when you leave this room you discover that you have left much of your concern in here. If you have fully repented, the relief and the peace you feel will be so noticeable that it will be a witness to you that the Lord has forgiven you. If not today, I think it will happen soon. I was late for my meeting. I opened the door. We went out together. I didn't know if we would ever meet again. The following Sunday evening, I received a telephone call at my home. It was from the young man. Brother Howard, how did you know? How did I know what, I asked. How did you know I would feel good about myself for the first time in five years? Because the Lord promised he would remember no more, I said. And then came the question, Do you think the church could use a 24-year-old missionary? If they could, I would sure like to go. Well, that young man was like one of the glasses we spoke about. He had been out in the world and was partially filled with the wrong things. He was not content. Sin had clouded his vision and interfered with his potential. Until he could find a way to repent, he could never become what he knew he should be. It took time to change, it took prayer, it took effort, and it took help. My young friend discovered that repentance is often a lonely, silent struggle. It is not a -a once-in-a-lifetime thing. Rather, it lasts a lifetime. As President Stephen L. Richards once said, it is an ever-recurring acknowledgement of weakness and error and a seeking and living for the higher and better This young man came to know that repentance is not a free gift. Just as faith without works is dead, so repentance, too, demands much. It is not for the faint-hearted or the lazy. It requires a complete turning away from wrongdoing and a set of new works or doings which produce a new heart and a different man. Repentance means work. It is not just stopping doing something. 
It is not just recognizing the wrong and knowing what should be done. It is not a cycle of sinning and repenting and sinning again. It is not only remorse. Rather, it is an eternal principle which, when properly applied over sufficient time, always results in renewal, cleansing, and change. The young men we have spoken about discover that where sin is serious, so as to jeopardize one's fellowship in the church, the sinner must be willing to submit to the jurisdiction and judgment of the person who holds the custody of his church membership and request forgiveness of him as well. Most important of all, he learned that repentance is an indispensable counterpart to free agency. Free agency in the plan of salvation contemplates that men and women are free to choose the direction of their lives for themselves. Repentance means that as imperfect beings sometimes make imperfect decisions, they may correct their course by following the rules of repentance and through the atonement of Jesus Christ. Mistakes don't count. The Lord agrees to remember no more. Because of the miraculous gift of forgiveness, transgressions are forgiven and forgotten. Men can be cleansed and returned to the path of purpose and progress and peace. By repenting, my young friend became a new person. He was born again of the Spirit. He came to understand for himself, and that is the important thing. The meaning of the Savior's words, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I so testify in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Recently, I approached the reception desk of a large hospital that I might learn the room number of a patient I'd come to visit. I noted that the hospital was undergoing a massive expansion program, like every other hospital in America. Then I observed that on the wall behind the desk where the receptionist sat was a magnificent plaque containing an expression of gratitude to the donors who had made the expansion possible. I also observed that there were individual plaques, little brass placards, containing the name of each person who had contributed $100,000 or more. The name appeared in a flowing script etched on the brass surface of the placard and each placard was held suspended from the main plaque by a glittering chain. I looked at the names, recognized most of them. Captains of commerce, giants of industry, professors of learning, they were all there, and I expressed my silent gratitude to them for their benevolent kindness. But then I observed one placard, right among the others, that was different. It contained no name. One word and one word only appeared on that surface of brass in the same flowing script. That word, anonymous. I wondered who the contributor could have been who chose to make his gift in this time-worn way. Surely he or she experienced a joy unknown to any other. My thoughts turned backward, back, back to the Holy Land, back to him whom we honor this Easter Sunday.
to him who died on the cross, that we might have the opportunity of eternal life, back to him who taught the meaning of the true gift when he took his disciples to a high mountain, and there he instructed them by saying, Take heed that ye do not your alms before men, to be seen of them. But when thou doest alms, see that thy left hand knoweth not what thy right hand doeth. And then, as though he wanted to indelibly impress upon their minds the practical application of the lesson he taught, he came down from the mountain with a vast multitude following him. And a young leper came unto him and worshipped him, saying, Lord, if thou wilt, thou canst cleanse me. And Jesus stretched forth his hand and touched him, saying, I will. Be thou clean. And immediately the leprosy was cleansed. And then Jesus saith unto him, See that thou tell no man. The word anonymous had a special meaning then. It still has. The classics of literature, as well as the words of Holy Writ, testify concerning the endurability of anonymity. A favorite of mine is A Christmas Carol by Charles Dickens. I can just see the trembling Ebenezer Scrooge when he's confronted by, shall we say, his former partner Jacob Marley, though he had been dead for seven years. The words which Marley spoke to Scrooge penetrate my heart. You'll remember them. He said not to know that any Christian spirit, working in its tiny sphere, will find its mortal life far too short for its vast means of usefulness, not to know that no space of regret can make amends for one life's opportunities misused. Yet such was I. After a very harrowing evening, when Ebenezer Scrooge was shown by the ghost of Christmas past, the ghost of Christmas present, and the ghost of Christmas yet to come, something about living, something about loving, something about giving. He awakened to a newness of life. He developed the power to love and the capacity to give. You'll remember that he thought immediately of his impoverished clerk, Bob Cratchit. And then he arranged for a lad to take to the Cratchit home the gigantic turkey, the one that was bigger than a boy. And then Scrooge mused to himself, and he shall not know who sends it. Again, the word anonymous. Oh, my brothers and sisters, the sand flows through the hourglass, and the clock of history moves on. But the true gift remains unchanged, undiminished, unaltered. When the beautiful steamship Lusitania plunged to her grave at the depths of the Atlantic Ocean, Many of her crew and passengers went with her. There were deeds of heroism, some unknown. One man gave his life preserver to a woman, though he himself could not swim a stroke, and he perished. It mattered little that his name was Alfred Vanderbilt, the American multimillionaire, for he gave not of worldly wealth. He gave his life. It was Emerson who said that rings and jewels are not gifts, 
but substitutes for gifts. The only true gift is a portion of thyself. A year ago last winter, a modern jetliner faltered on takeoff from Washington's National Airport, plunged into the icy waters of the Potomac River. Deeds of valor were in evidence that day, perhaps none so dramatic as those witnessed by the pilot of a rescue helicopter who hovered over the scene and lowered a lifeline to a struggling survivor. To the pilot's astonishment, the man refused the line and tied it rather around the shoulders of another who was hoisted to safety. Again the line was lowered, again the refusal, again another person was rescued. In all, five people were rescued by that helicopter that day. Among them was not to be found the anonymous hero. Unknown, he left the vivid air, signed with his honor. It isn't only in dying, however, that we can show forth our understanding of the true gift. Opportunities abound every day of our lives to demonstrate our appreciation of the true gift. Let me illustrate with perhaps three little examples. One of them. Early one winter morning, a father tiptoed into the bedroom of his two boys and said to them, much like this morning, A heavy snow has fallen during the night, boys. Let's get up, get dressed, and shovel the walks clear for our neighbors. So the trio dressed warmly before daybreak, took their shovels, and shoveled the snow from the walks of their neighbors. Father had given the boys just one instruction. He said, Make no noise, and they shall not know who helps them. Again, the word anonymous. Illustration number two. In a nursing home in Salt Lake City, I attended sacrament meeting one morning. The congregation was comprised entirely of elderly people in wheelchairs. Two young men were at the sacrament table, just ready to begin, when one elderly patient called out rather loudly, I'm cold. Immediately, one of the young men stood, walked over to her side, took off his jacket, placed it about her shoulders, gave her a loving pat on the arm, and returned to his duties at the sacrament table. At the conclusion of the meeting, I said to him, Young man, I'll long remember what I observed here today. He smiled and said, Brother Monson, I wasn't at all sure that without my jacket, I was properly dressed to officiate at the sacrament table. I said to him, Never has one been more properly dressed than were you this morning. I don't know his name. He remains anonymous. Illustration number three. Far from here in Europe, beyond a curtain of iron and a wall called Berlin, I met with a small group of members one evening in a cemetery. We had come to visit the grave of a missionary who had died many years before. A cold rain had been falling all day and into the evening. It was dark. But with the aid of a flashlight, we located the grave, and I read to the group the name and information on the tombstone. Joseph A. Ott, born 12 December, 1870, Virgin, Utah. Died 10 January, 1896, Dresden, Germany. 
Then I noticed that this grave was unlike any other in the cemetery. The headstone had been beautifully polished. The weeds which choked other graves had been carefully removed from this one, and in their place a beautiful piece of immaculately edged lawn and some lovely flowers. I said to the group, Who is responsible for keeping this grave so beautiful? My inquiry was met with silence, and then a twelve-year-old deacon acknowledged that without parental encouragement, without the knowledge of his priesthood leaders, he had kept that grave so lovely. He said that he just wanted to do something for a missionary who gave his life while in the service of the Lord. I thanked him, and then I pledged the group to secrecy that no one would reveal the name of this anonymous giver. I think that perhaps no one in my reading has better understood the meaning of the true gift than Henry Van Dyke, who wrote the beautiful story, The Mansion. The main character in the story is one by the name of John Waitman. John Waitman was described as a man of means, a dispenser of political power, a solid citizen. His attitude toward giving could be summed up in his expression, Give your gift where it will do the most good. No indiscriminate giving, no coins in beggars' hats, but let your gift be given where it can be readily identified and thus do good all around. One day John Waitman was seated in his large chair before the table in his study, reading some papers that were before him spread on the table. They told of the Waitman wing of the hospital, the Waitman chair of political jurisprudence at the university, the Waitman grammar school at Dulwich. John Waitman felt satisfied. And then he opened the old family Bible, which also was on the table, and he read to himself a passage from the New Testament. Lay not up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust doth corrupt, and where thieves break through and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. The book seemed to float upward. John Waitman found that his face lowered to his hands and rested upon the table. He slipped into a deep sleep. In his dream, he found that he had come to the heavenly city. He was there with people whom he had known in mortality. And a guide came forward and said, I have come to show you your heavenly homes. The little group stood before a beautiful mansion, and the guide said, This is your house, Dr. McLean. Go in. There is no more death here, no more sorrow, no more heartache, for all of your old enemies have been conquered. But all of the good that you've done, all of the kindness you've bestowed, all of the tender hope you have extended. They're all here, for we have built them all into the foundation of this mansion for you. And then a mansion was given to a bookkeeper who had cared for an invalid wife all of their married lives. Another mansion to a woman, a mother, widowed while yet young in life, who had reared a wonderful family. And then a mansion to a middle-aged woman who had lain for 33 years paralyzed, 
helpless but not hopeless, succeeding through a miracle of courage in her one aim, never to complain, but always to impart cheer to those who visited her. Finally, John Waitman was becoming impatient. He wondered where his mansion was, and he discovered that he and the guide were walking alone. And as they walked on and on, the homes became smaller, then smaller, then smaller. Finally, they stood on a windswept hill, nothing there but a little hut, smaller than a shepherd's shelter. And the guide said, John Waitman, this is your mansion. Oh, no, he called out. Why, have you not heard of the Waitman wing of the hospital? Have you not heard of the Waitman chair of political jurisprudence at the university? Have you not heard of the Waitman grammar school at Dulwich? Wait, said the guide. They were not ill-given, but they were given for the name and the mansion of John Waitman in the world. Verily, you've had your reward. Would you be paid twice? A sadder but wiser John Waitman then said to the guide, What is it that truly counts here? And the guide replied, Only that which is truly given, only that good which is done for the love of doing it, only those plans where the welfare of others is the master thought, only those labors where the sacrifice is greater than the reward, only those gifts where the giver forgets himself. Suddenly, John Waitman was awakened by the sound of the clock on the mantel chiming the hour of seven. He had slept the whole night through, but he was alive. He had yet a life to live, love to extend, and gifts to give. Oh, may we remember that a bell's not a bell till we ring it, and a song's not a song till we sing it. And love wasn't put in your heart there to stay. Love isn't love till you give it away. How I pray that we will remember this truth, that we will look upward as we press onward in the service of our God and our fellow men. And may we incline an ear toward Galilee that we might hear perhaps an echo of the Savior's teachings Take heed that ye do not your alms before men to be seen of them. Let not thy left hand know what thy right hand doeth. And of our good deeds, see that ye tell no man. Our hearts will then be lighter, our lives brighter, and our souls richer. Loving service, anonymously given, may be unknown to man. But the gift and the giver are known to God. And of this truth I testify in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. My beloved brethren and sisters, 150 years ago, the Prophet Joseph Smith organized a school of the prophets. The purpose of this school was to prepare selected members of the priesthood to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ to all the world. In the absence of a temple, 
The first school of the prophets was held in a small room in the home of Bishop Newell K. Whitney. Brigham Young was one of the early participants in this school, and he described the scene which frequently presented itself during the meetings. Quote, the brethren came to that place from hundreds of miles to attend school in a little room probably no larger than 11 by 14. When they assembled together in this room after breakfast, the first they did was to light their pipes and, while smoking, talked about the things of the kingdom. And as soon as the pipe was out of their mouths, a chew of tobacco would then be taken. Often when the prophet entered the room to give the school instructions, he would find himself in a cloud of tobacco smoke. This and the complaints of his wife at having to clean the floor made the prophet think upon the matter. And he inquired of the Lord relating to the conduct of the elders in using tobacco. Close quote. In response to this inquiry by the prophet, the Lord gave him a revelation in the Whitney home. The revelation is known as the Word of Wisdom. At first, the revelation was not given as a commandment. It was given as a principle with promise, adapted to the capacity of the weak and the weakest of all saints who are or can be called saints. This allowed time for the saints to adjust to the principles contained in the Revelation. While I was on my first mission in Great Britain in 1922, some of the good sisters had difficulty giving up their tea. They had joined the Church. I read that passage to them. And most of them quit drinking tea because they did not want to be considered the weakest of those who are or can be called saints. In 1851, President Brigham Young proposed to the General Conference of the Church that all saints formally covenant to keep the word of wisdom. This proposal was unanimously upheld by the membership of the Church. Since that day, the revelation has been a binding commandment on all Church members. The word of wisdom is one of the recognized and distinctive practices of members of the Church. Generally, others not of our faith acknowledge that members in good standing abstain from tobacco, coffee, tea, and all alcoholic beverages. Scientific studies have confirmed that Latter-day Saints have less incidence of heart problems, cancer, and other diseases because of their adherence to the Word of Wisdom. These studies have demonstrated that not only will one live a longer life, but that the quality of one's life will be better. The Word of Wisdom 
is one of the evidences of the inspiration of Joseph Smith's prophetic calling. Let me tell you why. Several years ago, investigators gave this testimony about Joseph Smith, one particularly. He said that the word of wisdom was the revelation that most attracted him to investigate the Church. There is no possible way, he said, that Joseph Smith could have known what we now know in the medical world about the harmful effects of tobacco, alcohol, tea, and coffee. Yet this has all been substantiated by medical science." Close quote. He said that this was the beginning of his interest and investigation of the gospel, for he reasoned that if Joseph Smith could be so accurate on a matter that medical science validated over a hundred years later, the rest of the teachings of the Church deserved investigation. He did so and is now a member of the Church. One principle of the gospel that all young people of the Church should understand is this. God, our Heavenly Father, governs His children by law. He has instituted laws for our perfection. And he, and if we obey his laws, we receive the blessings pertaining to those laws. If we do not obey, we receive the consequences. The word of wisdom is a law, a principle with promise. If we obey the provisions of the law, we receive the promises. If we do not, there will be both temporal and spiritual consequences. What are the provisions of the law, known as the word of wisdom? The revelation defines and ad admonishes abstinence from harmful substances and beverages in these words, quote, Strong drinks, or in other words, alcoholic or harmful beverages, are not for the belly. Tobacco is not good for the body and is not good for man. Hot drinks, defined as tea and coffee, are not for the body. Close quote. Those foods which are good for man are described in these words, quote, All wholesome herbs God hath ordained for the constitution, nature, and use of man. Every herb in the season thereof, and every fruit in the season thereof, flesh of beasts, and of the fowls of the air, are to be used sparingly. All grain is ordained for the use of man to be the staff of life. All grain is good for the food of man, as also the fruit of the vine. Unquote. In this revelation, the Lord counsels us to use meat sparingly. I have often felt that the Lord is further counseling us against indiscriminately killing animals, for he has said elsewhere in Scripture, quote, Woe be unto that man that sheddeth blood 
or that wasteth flesh and hath no need. Wheat is particularly singled out as being good for man, as is the fruit of the vine, vegetables, and all fruits. This is the wisdom of the Lord on the matter of sound nutrition and diet. The word of wisdom allows us to know that the Lord is vitally concerned about the health of his saints. He has graciously given us counsel for improving our health, endurance, and resistance to many diseases. The temporal promise for obedience is, quote, they shall receive health in their navel and marrow in their bones and shall run and not be weary and shall walk and not faint. Close quote. I have always felt, however, that the greater blessings of obedience to the word of wisdom and all other commandments is spiritual. Listen to the spiritual promise. Quote, all saints who remember to keep and do these sayings, walking in obedience to the commandments, shall find wisdom and great treasures of knowledge, even hidden treasures. Close quote. Some have thought this promise was contingent on just keeping the provisions of the word of wisdom. But you will notice we must walk in obedience to all of the commandments. Then we shall receive the spiritual promises. This means we must obey the law of tithing, keep the Sabbath day holy, keep morally clean and chaste, and obey all other commandments. When we do all this, the promise is, they shall find wisdom and great treasures of knowledge, even hidden treasures. Close quote. What father and mother would not want the inspiration of the Lord in rearing their children? I testify these blessings can be yours. Surely parents would not want to prevent their children from receiving the Lord's blessings through disobedience. All fathers and mothers in Israel should qualify themselves for this promise. Living the commandments of God is a condition of worthiness for entrance into the house of the Lord. Their wisdom, great treasures of knowledge, are given that relate to our happiness in this life and joy throughout eternity. Brothers and sisters and friends, learn this principle. The Lord will increase your knowledge, wisdom, and capacity to obey when we obey his fundamental laws. This is what the prophet Joseph Smith meant when he said, we could have sudden strokes of ideas which come into our minds as pure intelligence. This is revelation. We must learn to rely on the Holy Ghost so we can use it to guide our lives and the lives of those for whom we have responsibility. I do not believe that, that members of the Church 
can have an active, vibrant testimony of the gospel without keeping the commandments. A testimony is to have current inspiration, to know the work is true, not something we receive only once. The Holy Ghost abides with those who honor, respect, and obey God's laws. And it is that spirit which gives inspiration to the individual. Humbly, I testify to the reality of this promise. There is another part of this revelation that constitutes a pertinent warning to the modern generation. Quote, In consequence of evils and designs, which do and will exist in the hearts of conspiring men in the last days. I have warned you and forewarned you by giving unto you this word of wisdom by revelation. Unquote. The Lord foresaw the situation of today when motives for money would cause men to conspire to entice others to take noxious substances into their body. Advertisements which promote beer, wine, liquor, coffee, tobacco, and other harmful substances are examples of what the Lord foresaw. But the most pernicious example of an evil conspiracy in our time is those who induce young people into the use of drugs. My young brothers and sisters, in all love, we give you warning that Satan and his emissaries will strive to entice you to use harmful substances because they well know if you partake, your spiritual powers will be inhibited and you will be in their evil power. Stay away from those places or people which would influence you to partake and to break the commandments of God. Keep the commandments of God, and you will have the wisdom to know and discern that which is evil. This year marks the 150th anniversary of the Word of Wisdom in this dispensation. Marking this anniversary, the Church is restoring the Newell K. Whitney home and store in Kirtland, Ohio. The store is a most ordinary structure by any modern standard, but it is the place where sacred revelations of God were received. One hundred and fifty years have scientifically confirmed the word of wisdom as a formula for sound health. 150 years' experience with saints living these laws has also confirmed that God fulfills his spiritual promises to his saints. May we as saints of God keep all his commandments. May we be pure and holy so we can have the constant companionship 
of the Holy Ghost. Let us be distinctive as a people because of our obedience to God's laws. A new day is dawning in Kirtland. A few years ago, I broke ground for the first meeting house to be built in Kirtland since the dedication of the first temple in 1836. I recently returned and dedicated that beautiful new building. Following that dedication, we participated in a special reception attended by 58 non-members, descendants of the early saints in Kirtland. Some of these non-members have now been baptized and others are being prepared. We anticipate that within the next year we will once again have a stake in Kirtland where the very first stake of the Church was organized. I testify that this is the Lord's Church restored in this modern day. Jesus Christ lives. He directs the affairs of this Church and is close to His servants. I further testify that obedience to all of God's laws brings the precious promise of peace in this life and eternal life in the world to come. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. amen. May I say a few words? I appreciate the large number of boys who make so great an effort to come to these meetings. It is not easy for many of them. We are grateful to you. I should like to say some things particularly to you, and I do so by recounting a portion of a story with which you are already familiar. It is the story of David, the son of Jesse. As you will recall, the army of Israel, under the leadership of King Saul, was engaged in a deadly war with the army of the Philistines. One army was poised on one hill, the other on an opposite hill with a valley in between. Now the Philistines had among their men a great giant of a man named Goliath of Gath. His height was six cubits and a span. If I have figured correctly, that would put him more than nine feet tall. What a basketball center he might have made. <clears throat> Clad in his armor, he came down to the valley and called out to the army of Israel, Choose you a man for you and let him come down to me. If he be able to fight with me and to kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then shall ye be our servants and serve us. I defy the armies of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and the army of Israel looked at this giant and heard his chilling challenge, they were frightened because they had no one of their own of such stature. 
Now, while all of this was going on, Jesse, David's father, asked his young son to take some food to his three brothers in the army. When he arrived at the battleground, Goliath came out again, issuing the same challenge which David heard. There was fear throughout the army of Israel. David, who was no more than a boy, said to the king, and I paraphrase paraphrase his language, King, why are you so afraid of this giant? I'll go and fight him. Saul replied, Thou art not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for thou art but a youth, and he is a man of war trained from his youth. David then persuaded Saul to let him try. He told the king of how he had fought with a lion and a bear to save his father's sheep and concluded by saying that the Lord would deliver him out of the hand of the Philistine. Saul, possibly thinking that one more life lost would not be serious among the great losses they had already sustained, said to David, Go, and the Lord be with thee. Saul then placed armor on David until the boy could scarcely walk. David said unto the king, I can't wear this, and he took the armor off. He then took his staff in his hand and chose him five smooth stones out of the brook and put them in a shepherd's bag which he had, and his sling was in his hand. This stripling of a boy with only a slingshot and five stones and without any armor other than the armor of faith went down in the valley to face Goliath. And when the Philistine looked about him and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth and ruddy and of a fair countenance. And the Philistine said unto David, Am I a dog that thou comest to me with staves? And Goliath swore at David, saying, Come to me, and I'll give thy flesh unto the fowls of the air and to the beasts of the field. Then David spoke these great words. Thou comest to me with a sword and with a spear and with a shield, but I come to thee in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom thou hast defied. This day will the Lord deliver thee into mine hand, and I will smite thee, and take thine head from thee, and I will give the carcasses of the hosts of the Philistines this day to the fowls of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. That was brave talk for a boy who stood against a nine-foot giant. In anger, Goliath came at him. Then David, running toward the giant, put his hand in his bag and took thence a stone and slang it and smote the Philistine in his forehead, that the stone sunk into his forehead, and he fell upon his face to the earth. You know the rest of that story. I would like to bring it down into your own life. There are Goliaths all around you, hulking giants with evil intent to destroy you. These are not nine-foot-tall men, but they are men and institutions that control 
attractive but evil things that may challenge and weaken and destroy you. Included in these are beer and other liquors and tobacco. Those who market these products would like to enslave you into the use of them. There are drugs of various kinds, which I am told are relatively easy to obtain in many high schools. For those who peddle them, this is a multi-million dollar industry, a giant web of evil. There is pornography, seductive and interesting and inviting. It has become a giant industry, producing magazines, films, and other materials designed to take your money and lead you toward activities that would destroy you. The giants who are behind these efforts are formidable and skillful. They've gained vast experience in the war they are carrying on. They would like to ensnare you. It is almost impossible to entirely avoid their products, at least seeing them. You see these materials on all sides. But you need not fear if you have the slingshot of truth in your hands. You have been counseled and taught and advised. You have the stone of virtue and honor and integrity to use against these enemies who would like to conquer you. Insofar as you are concerned, you can hit them between the eyes, to use a figurative expression. You can triumph over them by disciplining yourselves to avoid them. You can say to the whole lot of them, as David said to Goliath, Thou comest to me with a sword and with a spear and with a shield. But I come in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom thou hast defied. Victory will be yours. There is not a boy within the sound of my voice who needs to succumb to any of these forces. You hold priesthood of God. You are a son of God. You have his power within you to sustain you. You have the right to ministering angels about you to protect you. Do not let Goliath frighten you. Stand your ground and hold your place, and you will be triumphant. As the years pass, you will look back with satisfaction upon the battles you have won in your individual lives. When temptation comes your way, Name that boastful, deceitful giant Goliath and do with him as David did to the Philistine of Gath. God bless each of you, I humbly pray. Now for a few minutes I'd like to go to another subject, particularly speaking to you older brethren. I have a friend who built a beautiful home and furnished it with the very best of carpets, furniture, appliances, and all that money can buy. Within its walls, he kept his fine automobiles and his expensive jewelry. Then, fearful of intruders who might enter and rob him, he had installed expensive deadbolt locks so that he had to use a key to get out as well as to get in. 
He put bars on the windows and doors and was like a prisoner looking out of his own home as one might do out of a jail. He installed costly electronic surveillance devices to turn on lights and set off sirens should any unwelcome individual enter. He landscaped largely without trees or shrubbery so there would no, be no place for a thief to hide. And he smugly said to himself, now I'm secure. But what he, what he did not realize is that neither bars nor deadbolts, neither lights nor sirens nor anything of the kind would have the slightest effect on intruders of another in vari variety who could destroy the lives of his children, despoil the marriage which had been the source of his happiness over many years, bind him with cords of meanness and bitterness and hate toward those he had once loved, and lock him in a dungeon, dungeon cell of despair and misery. Brethren, I spend much time listening to the tales of unhappy people. As a percentage of the entire membership of the Church, they constitute a relatively small number, but there are too many, and every case is a tragedy. With few exceptions, it would appear that the husband and the father is the chief offender, on whom the intruders of sin and selfishness take their greatest toll. I know it is an old subject and one that has been dealt with much, but I repeat it again. Guard your homes. How foolish it seems to install bars and bolts and electronic devices against thieves and molesters while more insidious intruders come in as invited guests. I say to you what I said to the boys. Avoid pornography as you would a plague. I recall an assignment some years back to restore the blessings of a man who had been excommunicated from the Church because of his sins. He came to my office with his wife. I spoke with him individually. I asked him how it all began. He had held a responsible position in the Church. He was a professional man with high responsibility in the community. His trouble began, he said, when he picked up a pornographic magazine to read on a plane. It intrigued him. It appealed to him. He found himself buying more of these things. Then he sought out movies which titillated him and excited him. Knowing that his wife would be a party to none of this, he went alone. He found occasion to leave town and go to other cities where he could more easily indulge his desires. He then found excuses to stay late at his office and asked his secretary to stay with him. One thing led to another until he succumbed. With tears rolling down his cheeks, he sat across the desk and cursed the day he had read that first magazine. He spoke of his love for the wife who had forgiven him and remained true to him. He spoke of his love for his children who had been shamed and embarrassed by his actions. He told of the hell through which he had walked for some four years from the time of his excommunication. He spoke of his love for the Church and of his desire to enjoy again its full blessings. In the presence of his wife, I placed my hands upon his head and in the authority of the holy priesthood restored his priesthood.
his temple endowment, his temple ceiling, and all other blessings which he had formerly held. This great, strong man sobbed like a baby under my hands, while his wife, holding her hand in his, wept as a child. At the conclusion of that blessing, they embraced one another, and he asked her to forgive him. She said she had forgiven him and that she loved him and always would. They were happy when they left, happier than they'd been in years, and I was happy too. But I thought of the terrible price he had paid and of the price he had exacted of his family through his foolishness and transgression. Unfortunately, there is not always that kind of happy ending. In many cases, there is divorce with bitterness and rancor. What was once love has turned to hate. Children's lives are blighted. Hope becomes as ashes. So often there is only misery and loneliness and regret. Brethren, keep your affections within your homes. Regard as your most precious possession in time or eternity she with whom you joined hands over the altar in the house of the Lord and to whom you pledged your love and loyalty and affection for time and all eternity. Your companion, your children, and you yourself will then know and feel a security far greater than any that can be bought with hardware and gadgetry. God bless you, my brethren, young and old, that the watch care of the Lord may be over you, that you may be stay close to him and be deserving of his preserving hand. I humbly ask in the name of Jesus Christ, amen. amen.